This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 73, New York City. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and you're embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about Babylon the Great, one of the great images from Revelation. Is it an image of New York? Let's talk about it. I've been reading New York's in a decline that may never reverse itself. Exactly how surprising is that from a biblical perspective? I've been hearing a man was shot and killed at a memorial to gun victims. Really? I've been playing Pit. The chaos of the stock exchange might make for an exciting afternoon, but it's no way to live your life. Let's start with what I've been preaching. At one point in the 1971 John Wayne classic, Big Jake, John Wayne's son, Michael Wayne, who is playing the son of Big Jake, looks out at this Mexican village that they have happened upon and says, look at Babylon. And maybe that's the way people look at Babylon. Maybe Babylon is simply a symbol for fun. I'm not sure exactly how unfair that would be in the context of the Bible and of history. But it's a short-term kind of fun, and it's a very important point that we make there. When we look at Revelation 17 and the image that's given to us of Babylon the Great, we see a creature, a woman, a representation, as it were, of short-term fulfillment, of happiness in the flesh. And all things fleshly, of course, are short-term in a biblical perspective, whether it is a person being happy for an hour or whether it is a society being happy for a generation. In any case, it is short-term, even to the point of the great head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was deposed personally. Eventually, his kingdom was brought down as well, as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. But what we see in Babylon of Revelation is not a particular demonstration of one culture or one person. I believe that the images in Revelation are intended to show humanity at large and the common problems and the common weaknesses and circumstances and failures and successes of human beings that are going to repeat themselves from generation to generation. And that's why Revelation is such a living document for us, why it's not so much a matter of telling the story of ancient Rome or the telling the story of ancient Jerusalem, although applications could be made to those things, but rather how we live as children of God, as citizens of heaven in a wicked and corrupt world that seems from time to time to be determined to destroy us. I'll read with you in Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke With me, come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spiritual wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a gold cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her head was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven horns, seven heads and the ten horns that carries her, reading through verse number seven there. And then he goes on to make explanation, which may or may not make sense to you and me, and may or may not have had specific and 
particular significance to the people who were reading this in the first century. A lot of people have tried to attach the, the seven mountains that the harlot is sitting on to the seven hills that the city of Rome was built on and, and, and other specific applications. I don't doubt that there's some truth in that. But I also believe that the bigger application is one of a global and timeless nature, that there is always this spirit of worldliness, the spirit of licentiousness and self-indulgence that caters to the mentality of the people of the world, and oftentimes the people of God. And those ones who are not giving into this culture are persecuted because the world is given over to such things. The world loves Babylon, and when we oppose Babylon, we look like the bad guys, and we are persecuted as a result of that. Now, how much of that has to do with New York City? I, I want to emphasize this before we get any further here. I don't know in the first place. I doubt very seriously, very seriously, that Jesus is telling John 2,000 years ago, there's going to come a time when the city is going to come up and it is going to be worse than any other city that's ever lived. And the people there are going to be worse than any people who've ever lived. And it's going to be completely in, inhospitable to the, the people of God in a way that has not been the case for any other city that's ever existed throughout all of time. That's not what New York City is. I've been to New York City a couple of times. I've enjoyed my time there. I've enjoyed a lot of things that exist there. I have friends who are there now. My brother used to live in the New York area, worship with Christians in Manhattan. It's not a sin to live in New York City. We're not suggesting here that New York is worse than any other city, whether they're talking about Portland or, or San Francisco or New Orleans or Las Vegas or Tokyo or, or any other city in the world or any other city that's ever existed in the world. That's not the point at all. The point is this, that people go to New York for carnal purposes, generally speaking. I, I've known of a couple of people in my life who have gone to New York specifically to be lights in the community when they desperately needed lights. I understand that. But generally speaking, people go there to get rich. They go there to get famous. They go there to cater to their physical well-being and their physical future. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when we look at the drunkenness and we look at the, the impurity and we see the sexuality of the great harlot, what we see here is an emphasis on short-term things. And as a result of this, New York becomes a cautionary tale for us. When you feed the flesh, when you sow to the flesh, as Paul writes in Galatians 6 and verse 8, you're going to, of the flesh, reap corruption. Eventually, it may be in judgment, it may be within your lifetime, it may be on an individual level, it may be on a cultural level. But there is certainly a comeuppance at the hand of God for those who insist that this world is all that it's about, that this world is where we need to indulge ourselves. Regardless of where you happen to live, you can pitch your tent, tent towards Sodom as Lot did if you want to, and you can find yourself righteous in that place as Lot did. But when we are making these decisions, let's remember what is our priority, and let's remember that we are supposed to stand out from the world as much as we possibly can. I'll refer you to Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 19 and following. Or 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. To those who say, let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that we can see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of, the, of Israel take place so we can know it. That's mocking there. Woe to those who call good, evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
I'm not suggesting here that New York is particularly in the crosshairs of God's wrath, but we are saying this, that if you adopt a lifestyle that is deliberately opposed to the things of God, if you value the things that are contrary to God's will for your life and God's will for human beings in general, there will be an accounting. There will be a judgment. We may or may not see it in this life, but we will do ourselves a favor if we will look at the misfortune that comes upon wickedness in this life when it does come and use that as a cautionary tale for all of us, for all of us to be held accountable, for all of us to hold ourselves accountable before God for the choices that we are making. Do not give in to Babylon. Do not accept the lifestyle that she is imposing and oftentimes almost forcing upon you. You can and you must do better than that. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. How the mighty have fallen. That's what David said mourning the death of Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25, again in verse 29. I don't think there's, a, there's any irony to be seen in that. I don't think that David is, is chuckling at Saul's expense, even though Saul was at the end a bad man, a, one who had used his power against David personally, one who had not been serving the purposes of God. Ultimately, this was the anointed of God, a man who had done great things in the name of God, in the service of the people of God. David honored that in Saul's death and genuinely regretted that Saul had come to the end that he had come to. And that is the spirit that I'm trying to invoke when I mention this phrase in the context of New York City. I'm not gloating at all. I don't think New York deserved what was coming to it or or any such thing as that. That's God's decision to make. That's not mine. Uh, I am genuinely remorseful at the state of our nation right now and the state of New York City in particular. And I would like the speculation that I'm reading these days to not be true, but it is suggested by many, and I'll link to one article in the the show notes. It's suggested that this decline is different, fundamentally different than what we saw in 2008, what we saw in 2001, what we've seen in, in other economic downturns and political downturns, that New York may very well not come back from this, that the greatness of New York City is gone and will never come back again. That would be a tragedy. That would be horrible, and certainly we hope that is not the case. But we want to put it in perspective also. And this is one thing that I've really struggled with, and I've tried very hard to do in the last, especially the last 10 years or so, to see my time, to see my days as a part of the bigger framework of human history and of American history. And and as far as spiritual things go, the history of the church. That is a very difficult thing to do. When you're at ground level, it's difficult, if not impossible, to see the big picture. But trying to back away a little bit and seeing what has happened in global history, what has happened in previous empires, in previous economic and political success stories, this sort of thing is not the exception. This is the rule. A culture rises up, a city rises up, a nation rises up and excels and succeeds and promotes itself, and eventually it goes the way of the dinosaur. That's the way it always works. And perhaps that's the way it's working for New York City as well. The Bible, uh, many of the prophets, Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel, certainly Daniel in his prophecies about the image of man in chapter 2, the the beasts that are given in chapter 7. There are ample depictions in the text 
of the rise and fall of empires. We see it historically. We see it biblically. And whether or not we're seeing it with regard to New York is not really the point. We'll be able to look back 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, and see where this episode ranks in the annals of history much better than we can do now. But what we can do in the moment, what we can do while we are actually living in these times, is be aware that our current circumstances, our current economic status, our current political status, our current health status, whatever it happens to be, is not the end-all, be-all. This is not about the fate of humanity. This is about our fate. This is about where we are right now. Our circumstance is not necessarily all that different from what has happened in times past. There have been a lot of efforts to compare what's going on today with regard to COVID-19, for instance, to the the flu epidemic in 1918 and to other pandemics, other plagues that have happened in times past. And it's difficult for us to measure one against the other. But what we can do is at least acknowledge this, that our problems are universal. Our problems are global. They have always been there. Sometimes they crop up in greater quantities or to greater degrees, but we are always living on planet Earth. And the things of Earth, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, these things are constant. Nothing changes. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. Uh, chapter 1 and verse number 10, this world that seems to be constantly changing in the big picture, when you back up and see it from a perspective, really doesn't change that much at all. And what we need to do instead of bemoaning our current circumstances and hoping desperately that they're going to change, rather take a moment to look at ourselves and to see what has happened to wicked empires in the past, what has happened to righteous people in the past. And as is the case with any circumstance that comes up, take an opportunity to examine where we are before God. Are we, in fact, rising or falling spiritually? And if the circumstances of this life, as horrific as they may be on a moment-to-moment or year-to-year basis, if those can give us an opportunity to make our lives right with God, then this moment doesn't have to be wasted. We're not suggesting that it's good that thousands of people die or that, that our culture comes to a grinding halt or any such thing as that. But what we can do is this. Say, I am a child of God, and I have an opportunity to examine my heart and examine my life and draw closer to God in this moment than I have in the past. And if the bad news accomplishes that more effectively than the good news, then the bad news can be turned into a profitable and useful tool in the hand of God. We'd rather have the good news. But if we get the bad news, let's at least learn the lesson that comes with the bad news. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Paul Pinckney, aged 46, visiting the site of a gun violence death in New York City near Prospect Park while lighting a candle to honor the slain is himself shot twice in the head and killed. He becomes a victim of gun violence. This You can't make this stuff up. This is preposterous. It's almost ludicrous if it weren't so sad. But this is where we are in this nation. It's not just New York City by any means. It's not even particularly New York City these days. There are even worse examples elsewhere. How did we get here? How do we get to the point where violence is an acceptable 
reaction of normal people, ordinary people, to the events of the day, to the circumstances of the day? And the answer is not complicated. The answer is not hidden from us somehow. It was described to us many, many years ago. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 28. We'll skip ahead in the context of verse 28 and read the text where Paul says about the cultures of his day and before his day. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. I don't know exactly how it was that the Gentile world of old knew, as Paul says here, about the will of God, whether he's talking in general terms, whether he's talking about the knowledge that came off of the ark and was passed down in some level, in some way, perhaps through the occasional prophet to the world. I don't know. But I know how it's true in our day. The Bible is pervasive. Everybody has access to it. Everybody knows about it. Most people have read at least parts of it. We know that God opposes sin, and we have at least a general idea of what sin is. Even if we haven't read the Bible, we know that shooting total strangers in the head is wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Most people uh, agree with that sentiment and do not practice that, and yet some do. How is it? Well, it goes back to the beginning, and it's not just murder, notice here. It's all kinds of other perversities. These things happen all for the same reason, because they refuse to have God in their knowledge. Because we have chosen to exclude God, either on an individual level or on a cultural level, people are being brought up not considering God in these situations. This isn't the first time you've heard this, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard others state it much more eloquently than I am. I'll do the best I can, though. What we're saying is, when we choose to exclude God, when God's morality, when God's justice is excluded from the equation, then all of a sudden, all kinds of vistas of opportunity open up to us. If we don't feel like we're being held accountable by God, then we just have to worry about other factors. Maybe we'll be held accountable by government. Well, these days, that's a considerably sketchy notion. Depending on where exactly you're living, it's become perfectly evident under certain circumstances that you are not going to be held accountable by government. You're not going to be held accountable by the media. You're not going to be held accountable by your friends. In fact, this kind of reaction, even this extreme reaction, can in fact be a positive thing. Social justice warriors are being taken to the the ultimate level. You are actually at war. And I'm not particularly picking on one side or the other of this social warfare that we're engaged in, but it is war, and there are casualties. And the result here, regardless of which side you're fighting on, the reason why dead bodies are piling up is because people don't have a regard for God. They may mouth a regard for God, but as far as doing what God says, they don't really believe that. And so if God won't help hold them accountable, and government won't hold them accountable, and society won't hold them accountable, well, then there's no limitation to how perverse we might get. This is the presence of evil in the world. And, and I don't mean to sound like certain political stances or political opportunities or political movements or political reactionaries or leaders that they brought this on somehow. 
they have allowed it come to the top. But the bottom line is here, evil has always existed in our hearts. Evil has always existed in the world. It came out with Cain. It came out with various ones in Bible times. It continues to come out today. And what we need to do as the people of God is maintain our hold on God. Maybe we can't fix society. Maybe we can't fix our school system. Maybe we can't fix our halls of government. But we can hold true to God's ideals ourselves. We can be God's people ourselves and maybe encourage other people with the light God gives us to be God's people also. We can't turn ourselves into vigilantes. We can't allow ourselves to become Batman, running wild, not accountable to anybody. We have to hold ourselves accountable to God always. We have to believe that he is watching over us, that he is guiding us, that even in these crazy times, he is in fact watching out for us. And that by submitting to him in all things, we can at least ensure our own survival, our eternal survival. And ultimately, that's all that really matters. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. A little bit of chaos in its place may not be all that bad, depending on what kind of form it takes, depending on what time of night it is. Such has been the case with the Hammonds family over the last 20 years or so, probably closer to 30 years, uh, with regard to the game Pit. There was a night, and I say night, probably early morning would have been a better way of phrasing it, when I literally left a game of pit and went out into our front yard to listen to what was going on to make sure that we weren't disturbing our neighbors excessively. That's how crazy pit can get. If you don't know pit, it's a game that's been around for well over 100 years. And it basically attempts to recreate the atmosphere in the old style stock market, when there were actually traders on the floor and waving pieces of paper and trying to trade stocks by hand and writing them down on paper. What you do in pit is imagine that you are a trader and maybe you're trading in barley or wheat or oranges or sugar or coffee or whatever it happens to be. And you're trying to corner the market. You're trying to get all of the cards of that particular denomination. And you basically do that by yelling two, 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 or three, 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 or whatever it takes to trade a certain number of your own cards for a certain number of somebody else's cards. And the cards have to be all, of course, the, the same value. They have to all be barley cards or all corn cards or whatever. And as you get closer and closer to getting your full set, the feeling is, and it's probably a true feeling, that some or even most of the other players are also getting close to cornering their markets. And the first one to do so gets a certain number of points and everybody else is is left holding the bag, as it were. And so it gets to be loud and crazy and and chaos, basically, around the around a dinner table. And if you have a, a good game with maybe six or seven or eight players going at once, you need to be concerned about how this is affecting your neighbors. That's a lot of fun, or it was, anyway, back in the day when we were young and when we didn't mind staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning screaming at each other. But now I look at Pitt and my girls say, hey, let's play Pitt. We haven't done that in a while. And I'll look at Tracy and I'll go, all right, I guess. 
madness. That's what you want to play. Fine. I'm kind of over the chaos. It's it's really not nearly as appealing as it once was. I'll play it. I'll enjoy it. That's fine. But at some point, you realize that more chaos in your life is a bad thing, that you want to have things under control, that that having an orderly lifestyle is a good thing. What you called boring 30 years before is actually preferable to what you called exciting 30 years ago. And I don't doubt that people in New York City today, for instance, would prefer a sedate lifestyle where you are less likely to get shot, where you're less likely to fall victim to some kind of random act of violence than the the exciting and crazy lifestyle they're engaged in right now. At any rate, I I use Pit as an example of a New York-type game, a New York-style game, because We find ourselves in a very chaotic world today. We find ourselves surrounded by disorder, and that may seem in the moment like it's a good thing, or at least it's not necessarily a bad thing. And you can, like in the game, work the chaos to your advantage. If you are more effective, if you are more adept at turning the chaos to your advantage, you can make a pretty good profit, as it were, in the short term, whether it's on the stock market floor or whether it's in life in general. But what we as Christians realize is that chaos is the work of the devil. And we are not going to accomplish Jesus' purposes in our lives by finding chaos or by seeking chaos or by creating chaos. He requires of us something more reasonable than that. And he asks us to pray for things that are more reasonable than that. And in our current climate, where chaos is oftentimes seen as a a useful agent of change, it's important for us to remind ourselves that that's not the way God has ever asked his people to act. The government in the first century was far more oppressive, far more contrary to the interests of Jesus Christ than our government is today in the United States. And I don't care who your political affiliation is. And yet, we did not see any kind of effort whatsoever by Jesus or by any of his followers to rise up in rebellion somehow, to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Certainly, we see examples of individuals defending themselves, going to court to defend themselves, etc. But what we do not see is some kind of political uprising. This is not a political movement. This is a spiritual movement. And as a result, we read passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 1 and following. First of all, then, Paul writing here, he says, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings, and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I think we have a problem here remembering sometimes what we were really trying to accomplish. Are we trying to find peace on earth? Are we trying to find some kind of satisfaction here on earth? Because if we do, what we're oftentimes want to do is go petition the government. Go to some kind of earthly source for some kind of earthly redress of grievances. And that is exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. You don't pray to the government. You pray for the government. And you don't pray for the government so that you can get some kind of comfortable, cushy surroundings. You simply want an environment where you're free to live your life in Jesus, 
what we need to do, especially when we're in some kind of position where we can reasonably expect to get it, is pray for this tranquil life, to seek peace. We can find this tranquility so that we can be freed to pursue the things of Jesus Christ in this life. Is that really our goal? Is that really what we want out of life? To be able to live as Christians? Are we trying to make a lot of money? Are we trying to get a lot of friends? Are we trying to, in some other way, pursue carnal things? Find success on the stock market floor, as it were. If we really want spiritual success, spiritual freedom, spiritual hope and peace and tranquility, God will provide that for us. And he may even, if we ask him, provide physical circumstances to allow us to pursue those things. But even more importantly than that, if it's not stepping on the Apostle Paul's toes too much here, pray for the courage, the resilience, the strength of character to deal with whatever circumstances we are provided with. As Paul himself says in the Philippian letter, he's found a way to be content in all things because that contentment comes, verse 13 says, through Jesus Christ. With Jesus, you can find peace in this world and be able, be motivated, feel contentment in your life for pursuing his purposes instead of just your own. May God give us that strength. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammonds.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.